Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the Naked Leadership Podcast. This is Chad. I'm joined once again this week by Dan and Adrian. We have a very special guest. His name is Carl Libba. Carl is an incredible human that I am just so grateful to know. Carl owns a branding agency, and he's also a coach to CEOs and founders. His perspective on curiosity and being the most interesting person in the room is absolutely inspiring and enlightening, and I cannot wait to introduce you to Carl. So without further delay, I give to you Carl Libba. Carl, how are you, man? Hey, Chad. I'm so good, man. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, it's such a it's such a, a delight to have you on. I have to say, we got a chance to spend a couple days together. What was it? Last month, maybe yeah. two months ago, and just to see your face again brought me so much happiness, brought me so much joy. So I really appreciate you being here. Well, I'm grateful to be here and. Yeah, it was a real pleasure to get to meet you and Adrian out in the desert. Obviously, Dan and I have had a little bit more time together before that, but uh, just honored to be on with you guys. Yeah. Dan, how are you? Good. I'm happy to be here, too. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And Adrian, it's good to have you, man. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know the context. How do you, Carl, how do you and Dan know each other? We've met through, you know, now our mutual buddy, Jeffrey Woods through Apex. So Dan was talking and then I was talking and then we got to, you know, just uh, trade notes on flow states and how you encourage people to be the version of themselves that they're intended to be. So. Got it. Okay, good. Um, Carl, you're such an interesting man. And you're like, <laughs> even the, even the day, the couple days that I got to be around you and be in conversation with you, it, it was kind of like peeling an onion. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I'm saying you're an onion, you're, you're right. much sweeter than an onion, but that yeah. <laughs> it was that. Exp- Just like Shrek. But it really was like each time you opened your mouth, I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, that's another layer of that man that I didn't know existed. That's great. Um, so I, in, in that spirit, I want to give you just a minute to introduce yourself to our audience who are leaders in some capacity in their business, their founders, their CEOs, executives, entrepreneurs. Um, and in that context and in, in the, the spirit of what these conversations is are called naked leadership. We're really revealing the conversations of leadership that most aren't willing to have. Um, and I know just such enough about you that I knew you could hang in this conversation in a meaningful way. So all of that said, I'd love for you to just introduce yourself, um, and, and let us know the highlights. What should we know about Carl diving into this conversation? Yeah. Thanks so much, man. I appreciate the onion analogy, you know, just like onions, I guess I'm better deep fried. Um, but the different, the different layers of me, um, would be these days I married two kids, you know, doing all the regular life stuff and the things I get to do when I'm showing up inside a business context are on the one side, I've got a brand agency. And so, um, we believe that everybody's got a fascinating story and and that fact is more interesting than fiction which just means people have to find a better way to tell their own story and so we believe that we're kind of master craftsmen when it comes to story and that's what we help with is um is brands just really telling the world 
exactly how they intersect with them in maybe a more compelling way. That's already true of them that they just haven't had anybody kind of help uh, with the prose or the visual or the overall story arc of who they are. So that's the one side. And in the other business, I consult CEOs. So when you're talking about founders and CEOs and leaders, uh, those are the people that I like to dive in with the most. One, because um, I believe they tend to be the loneliest people. And what I mean by that is they're not seen, they're not heard. In every room, they're expected to show up a certain way. And if they don't, um, then their internal critic uh, goes off the charts, as well as the crit uh, critique of everybody in the room. And it has this weird dysfunction because you expect CEOs to talk a lot and founders to talk a lot. But I don't believe that a lot, a lot of times they get to talk or position them in a way that's healthy to themselves or to other people. And so I find endless joy in helping to change some of that narrative for them. And so some of the most fun that I've got to have inside companies is to help them think differently about themselves and the people that they work alongside so they feel less lonely because I'm genuinely more concerned about them as a human being than I am of them being a better producer of whatever their widget is. But it's this weird thing. The stronger they become as a person, the more widgets they sell. It's this weird thing. It's amazing. <laughs> that, that, that connection is interesting, right? Really interesting. Yeah. Once we start, uh, stop minoring on the majors and start, uh, or start uh, majoring on the minors, all of a sudden those things come into the correct order, which is something, you know, Chad and I talked a lot about in the desert was like, how do we pursue order over balance? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is a message that will resonate with this crowd. Uh, we, we, uh, I guess we could say we fly in the face of the idea of balance often. Yeah. Um, and challenge that idea and, and what it actually, that may create more contention for people, more, um, discomfort or not discomfort, but dis, uh, like disillusionment for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's an unattainable idea often. So I'm interested to know just because I'd, I'd love to dive into the deep end right from the beginning and you get to work with leadership. So you've probably thought about this before, but if you could give leaders one piece of insight to consider, like you could only give them one, mm -hmm. what would it be? Uh, pursue curiosity at all costs. So wow. curiosity, like everything else is a muscle. It can be developed. It can also atrophy. And I would much rather have seven and eight year olds run companies because they'd want to know what everything does and how it works and why people want to be there. Um, when we're 38 and running a company, somebody expects you to know all those answers. And so you walk into every room making lots of assumptions. And we all know the old adage about assumptions. Uh, it also makes us look less flexible. It makes us less interesting um, because when you no longer have curiosity, you're no longer interested. You assume that you have the answers. And the old adage from Dale Carnegie is, you know, in order to be interesting, you have to be interested. And so for us, it's going, how do you, how do you change the mindset of a founder, CEO, leader to go, I'm going to walk into every room and I will walk out and everyone will feel like I was interested in them. They will know that the authenticity of my curiosity is what's moving the culture forward. Curiosity is something that we talk a lot about in this podcast and in our, in, in the work that we do with leaders, Adrian, I'm wondering, as you listen to Carl talk about curiosity and that being the single piece of insight that he would ask them to consider, 
does that align with you? I mean, what, what are you thinking about as you hear him talk about curiosity? Yeah. It just actually makes me think of the, the, um, there's a paradox in it that just showed up in a coaching call. I just got off of right before this with with a woman that I've been coaching for probably three or four years now. And, um, I think it's probably the paradox that most leaders that you're talking about, Carl, um, feel themselves in because there is a, there's a, I need to have an opinion and need to search for opinions. Like have, like be myself and, and then also be myself in a way that wants other people to be fully expressive. And the feedback that this client just got was that, that she was in, she's rising up in this company she's in and her boss said, Hey, you need to declare more. His request of her was like, is you, you, you ask a lot of really great questions. You also need to answer them or at least provide a potential solution with your curiosity. So my, I guess if, if I were to find a question there, first off, does that make sense? This kind of both handness of it. Um, because at the end of the day, somebody's got to make a call. I'm also thinking about a, a company we're talking to right now where they were very, they were founder led and the founder, very strong, very opinionated, very great, loving, all that, and very directional. And now there's a new CEO that I just met, that I just met recently. And she's much more democratic in her stance, which is like, you know, I, in her view of it is like having a, leadership team run company and previously a founder run company now a leadership team run company and part of the concern that showed up is like um you know her curiosity leads her to take a lot of votes about what people want and sometimes there's a strain of okay and at the end of the day who's going to make a call you know like somebody's got to make a decision after all this so anyway there's some there's some contextual i think probably some concerns that that make people not believe in the power of curiosity, you know, because the curiosity is a, I, I think a revelatory process, both revealing value that you're talking about, uh, like, Oh, I care about you and I care about your opinions. Um, but there's probably things that hold the beliefs about curiosity that hold people back. What do you think are the beliefs behind uh, or maybe in front of curiosity that get in the way of it? getting to the surface? What have you seen? So uh, Adrian, it's a fantastic question. I think the first part that I always want to clarify is I think when people start making decision by committee, it's typically an indicator that maybe the vision isn't set. And so to use an analogy, I would use like an airline. The CEO or the founder has to decide the route. If we're going from where I live in Atlanta to where Adrian, you are in LA, we know that's the vision. Okay. We are going, we're headed in this direction to LA. But then the other parts of this that I would invite shareholders and people who are stakeholders in the thing to so go, what kind of airline do we want to be? Do we want to be Southwest? Where it's kind of fun and we're going to have fun announcements and you're going to get on when you want to get on. Do we want to go to Delta where we're going to reward loyalty, where the longer you're with us, we're going to you know, give you medallion miles. Do we want to be Virgin? It's like kind of cool and hip. But those people get to help develop um, the feel. But the vision of where we're going is really, really clear. But I think what happens with a lot of CEOs that I talk to is they go, okay, if I budge an inch, 
when I walk into a room, we're going to lose the flight path to LA. And it's like, that's not true. If you establish that really clearly and people understand where you're going, now they can be a part of helping you get there. And you don't have to be the flight attendant and the mechanic and the person handing out snacks. Uh, You can be really honestly more the, the person who owns the airline. And that's also a different conversation of moving from operator into owner, but that might be a separate podcast. We like that podcast, but you know, what comes to mind is that I, I, I dig that kind of view into what might, what's competing with curiosity mm-hmm. is at least what I would, you know, to summarize what you're saying is like the abdication of the authority or the, the abdicate, like the potentially the avoidance of the weight of the responsibility. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's you know, this, we, we talk about this leadership assessment tool we use called the Harrison assessment. And it's, that's one of the paradoxes is how authoritative someone is. And that's not like being an authoritarian. It's like wanting the way, uh, wanting the decision-making responsibility uh, and, and the responsibility for the outcomes. That's everybody's somewhere on that scale and the willingness to collaborate with others, you know, which is both and in your view, right? So if, you, if, if someone takes on, oh, at the end of the day, my name's on the, on the wall, figuratively speaking, do people do that still? Anyway, um, my, my, my name's on the wall or the door outside, and I'm, I'm okay with that. And in order to get there in the most effective way, I really need other people to get their best ideas on the table. Yeah, well, and to the point when somebody's willing to take responsibility for the direction, you know, for the objective, if the objective is clear, then it's actionable for everyone. Every, anyone can take action on it. They can... Now, now you get curious about how can I add to the value of this objective where we're headed? So, I mean, I mean it rang, you rang some bells for me, Carl. Right? I was wondering, when, when, you work, when you find yourself working with a, with a founder or CEO or team, what is the biggest, what, what's most common in the breakdowns you find between a founder and his staff, his team? That's a great question. And um, unfortunately, the problems are as varied as the leaders are. And I think you would know, you know, you talk about like, you know, the Harrison test, you're taking a predictive index or uh, Enneagram or StrengthsFinders or Myers-Briggs. It's so funny in the world that we live now, it's almost like we're learning a new language based on whichever test, you know, the leaders have taken. And so I see everything from leaders who wanted to scale and then hoping it will run on its own, giving no future clarity. And they've they feel like they've empowered when accidentally they've abdicated all the way to the other side where they're like, I want micro reports through Slack two times an hour on everything that's being done. So nobody can ever grow because they're so busy being in this space. But what I've found uh, the healthiest leaders, I guess, is what I would say. And the, the leaders who are creating a great culture, which is influencing a wonderful brand, which is moving the product forward. Those are kind of the ways that I'm assessing a great and healthy leader are the ones again, who are genuinely interested in their leadership team. These are the kind of people who um, I was recently uh, talking with a friend, one of their companies, uh, every single uh, leader is assigned their own coach. They're assigned their own retreat. And in this, the coaching, uh, if they agree to it is about their personal life. How are they doing? Are they all right? How can we help? It's not invasive. It's supportive. Um, and I find um, the ideas of the healthiest CEOs are you teach what you know, but you replicate who you are. And are you replicating something healthy? 
And the leaders who are fearless about other people getting to have responsibility and sharing a place at the table are the ones who grow the most and honestly, even the fastest. Um, because other people think, oh, well, we had a great quarter. We sold a lot more product. But their growth actually isn't genuine because there's two people at the leadership table who are looking for other jobs. And so now you're going to have to replace them in the next quarter. And then now you're going to go three steps back for the one step forward that you took. I'm, I'm curious, Carl. I want to go back to the, the curiosity thing. I, I, I'd love to know you have such a varied lived experience in the, in the stories that I've heard from you. I'd love to know if that's the one thing you would relate to leaders about the curiosity thing, how did you discover it? What life experience gave you that insight to help leaders consider it? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm um, long story as short as possible. Born in South Africa, lived in Central Africa in Zaya, fled Zaya, came to the States, lived in East Tennessee for five years after the company that brought my dad over went bankrupt. We were uh, without paperwork uh, in the U.S. for five years um, in East Tennessee. And um, then uh, found myself graduating college or uh, high school at 16 after my father passed away. So if you can imagine being like in East Tennessee, which with a fairly thick South African accent, and um, you're, you're just this strange case study to everybody that you meet. They're instantly curious about you because the other part of this is my dad loved nothing more in the world than an East Tennessee flea market. Like it was his favorite place on the planet because <laughs> mm-hmm. it, 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 it stoked all of his like um, African marketness. Like, cause it was the only place you could go in the U S like in the States, you want something, you pay for it. In Africa, we're like, I like what you've got. Do you like something that I've got more kind of trade? And the flea market was the only place that, that you could do this. And my dad was like, this is my happy place. So on Saturday mornings, he would load us up after we did some work in the foundry. We'd go into a local flea market and my dad would have to take our African gray parrot, which is one of the only things we brought with us from Central Africa. And he's got like a little fishing cap. He's got short shorts on. My dad's six foot three, 240 pounds, got a big beard and a parrot on his shoulder. I mean, it's a freak show walking through a flea market in, you know, Mohawk, Tennessee. He's got identical twin sons, which are my brothers, two years younger than me, look exactly alike. Luckily, they've, you know, now grown beards and look different. And, you know, they have lovely wives and children. One's a neurologist. The other one's an incredibly uh, talented graphic designer and storyteller in his own right. But we would walk through these flea markets and you're like, what did the circus bring into town? Um, And so it was very, I was very used to being a curiosity. But what people didn't understand, because they would even ask me, oh, where's your accent from? I'd be like Johannesburg. And then I would say, where's your accent from? And they go, what accent? Because they're in, uh, you know, an East Tennessee like echo chamber, everybody sounds like them. But to me, they all sound incredibly different. And so a lot of my lived experience was I was always interesting to somebody else. But a lot of times they didn't feel interesting to me, like in their own mind. They were immensely interesting to me, but they didn't feel that way. So the minute I gave them what I consider the greatest gift you can give another human being, which is your attention, all of a sudden they felt interesting. And I I noticed how this would unlock things over and over. And so, you know, by the time I'm 12, 
I've lived on two continents in two hemispheres in three countries. I've been in eight different schools and I instantly knew how to make friends because I would just get interested, even though in their little world, I was the most interesting thing. They'd come along for sure that week, maybe in quite some time. And so this is a skill set that since then, it's that whole idea of, um, like we mentioned before, in order to be interesting, you have to be interested. And I think what a lot of CEOs I've experienced in coaching them, they think the position will make them interesting to their employees. They think the paycheck will make them interesting to their employees. And I tell them all the time, I was like, if you want to go quickly, it's the old African proverb, if you want to go quickly, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And in order to rally people to go with you, they have to feel like you're invested in them. And in order to do that, you have to be genuinely interested. And the only way to do that is to become genuinely curious. And so that all comes out of a lived experience in my own life. Amazing. Thanks for sharing that, man. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, My pleasure. I I was busy thinking, wow, I would have loved, uh, I would definitely would have been the guy that would have been like, hold on a second. I got to go meet this guy. (laughs) (laughs) What's he up to? I, yeah. What, oh my gosh. Can I touch it? Can I hold this pair? Is that, is yeah, that, is yeah, that yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. no, it's great. It's, it's, um, I, I dig, I dig the Carnegie distinction. I, I didn't get it when I was 12. Um, more like when I was probably 37. Um, and, and just to deal with myself and meaning that I guess orient myself, but it showed up like dealing with myself. And for me, when I was building, maybe even earlier, I've been at this work for about 12 years now, but when I would go hang out with people that I wanted to work with, all of them were smarter than I was, more accomplished than I was, fill in the blank. If if you're doing a comparison game, I'm here, social status, they're here, social status. And the only way to deal with myself, I guess people that are hearing can't see my hands as you guys can see my hands, but anyway, they're above me in my own mind. And the only way to deal with myself was to notice that game. Like I, when you walk into a cocktail party, everybody's, most people are playing a game called who can be the most interesting person in the room. And I got, at least for myself, there's a lot of freedom when I just decided my game was who can be the most interested person in the room. And I can choose to do that. And that, that actually is to your point, extremely effective. And to Dale Carnegie's point, like if you're interested in someone, they love you. Because you give them, to your point, the, I don't know, probably the most desirable thing is to be seen and to be heard and to be understood. You know, I, I just had a, and, and uh, I'll try to tell this story with some bit of, um, some privacy to it. Anyway, there's a, with my fiance um, and her, and they've, they've got some family stuff going on with their dad. And there's, a, anyway, some kind of breakdown. And I jumped on the phone with, with, her dad and talked with him for an hour about some of his upset and just listened. And Hey man, I love you. I don't know. We don't know each other very well. And we're going to, we're going to decide what kind of relationship we have over time. This is the, he'll be my future father-in-law, but I'd like to be your friend. And, you know, he, he was taken back by that just by that like declaration is like, Hey, I'd like to be your friend. So let's hear it. Let's hear about it. Like, tell me about it. And by the end, we we're very connected. His text to Ali afterwards was you've got a very sincere and thought provoking man. I'm so happy you're with him. Why? Cause I just listened for an hour and I provoked and I challenged and all the stuff that was needed. But you know, on the other end, he came to Ali in such a loving way 
that he had not seen access to because of all the stuff he was, you know, he just needed to vent. He needed to like get stuff off his chest. And part of his confession to me, which was really heartfelt and really, you know, sad in the moment is, you know, his, Ali's mom died like years ago. And he just said, I don't have anyone to talk to about my kids anymore. And, you know, that was, you know, it took me back when he said, it, and I'm like, I can get it, man. Like, yes, you come off this way, not even to me, but to Ali and to her brother, you come off this way, but you've got some needs that need to find language. So that, and when you find language for them, you can put them in their place, like to properly order them mm-hmm. is that your love is your love is worth more pursuing than your bitterness. And, you know, anyway, to your, that just kind of like the, to sit and listen and connect open up a whole new frontier of relationship between me and Phil, who's a dear man. And yeah. I'm going to be his buddy. As, as long as he'll let me, I'll be his yeah. buddy. And the beautiful thing that I love about that is one of the things that I say all the time is that all humans have two basic um, things that they're wired for. Is they're wired to celebrate pleasure and they're wired to carry pain. And what has happened, especially in Western culture, is that we've forgotten to do either well, and we haven't practiced how to do either of them well. And so like in the instance with your future father-in-law, the temptation would be to jump in and fix it. And what he needed was for you to carry it. And this is also when you look at kind of the conversation we're having now about leaders is we are required to know everything all the time and to fix it as fast as humanly possible. When as humans, that's not actually what our basic needs are. Our basic needs are, are you willing to carry this if it goes sideways? Are you willing to celebrate it with me if it goes really well? And in that moment, um, you exercise such a beautiful muscle of carrying that thing for him that you have bought, I mean, exponential capital through anything that comes next. And this is the other thing. When people come and, you know, a leader will say to me, I'm having a problem with this employee. I'll ask them, how much personal capital do you think you actually have with this person? That's a good question. Because because they work for you and you pay them, they're supposed to do a job. That's fine. But when things go sideways, you need to ask yourself, how many personal investments have I made into this account that I can now withdraw when things get hard? That I can ask, actually ask them, hey, could you give me grace if maybe I haven't led well? Could you give me a little bit of leeway or margin if I haven't created great clarity or expectation of where we're going. And if they go, and this is the first time we've ever talked about this, it means our account is not zeroed, it's in the the negative. Because if you make challenges, if you make requests of people, we have to understand that psychologically speaking, for every, um, you you use different words um, that were really good, Adrian, but like a challenge, or you said, you didn't, you, you know, there are parts of the conversation where you kind of push on them. For every one of those pieces where we challenge, one, psychologically, you have to have five moments of invitation. That's, that's just to equal zero. There has to be one challenge for every five moments of invitation. And, and we just don't think through these things. I was actually having a, a call this morning with one of my clients who's a, a software company. And they were having this problem where they're like, hey, our employees are talking about, you know, somebody joked across the whole, um, somebody's like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about this. And the guy yelled back, hey, don't worry, you, you can't get fired over that, at least not today. And they came back into the meeting, they're like, hey, it really upset a bunch of people that like this guy would say that. And I was like, because I know the culture, this is not a culture where you get fired. There's a long on-ramp of like, hey, these things aren't going well, they've done that really healthily. So I said, so does that say more about your culture 
or the three cultures that came before here? And is the person leading this person, serving them, to taking time to say, hey, would you tell me about your previous environments? What happened there? What was it typically like? Get interested in them before here. Because all of us know you don't show up to this job with just the baggage from this job. It's everything that's before that. Just like Adrian, with your conversation with your father-in-law, future father-in-law, it wasn't about the one conversation with his daughter. It's about the previous two decades of conversations or lack thereof that he's bringing into the conversation. So are we willing to carry that? And you doing that beautifully for an hour helped him to unlock and and has immeasurable benefit in the future. And that's what we have to be encouraging our CEOs and our leaders to do. And if they don't have the bandwidth or the capacity, they need to be hiring a, you know, uh, uh, I heard somebody the other day call it the uh, director of heart or the C, you know, the C-suite of heart. They're just there to care for people. And so if you're too busy, which is fine, maybe you're making deals and growing the business and doing, but there needs to be somebody on staff that they can go to and go, Oh, you will help carry things. And then also you'll help celebrate appropriately when things go well, because the opposite side of that coin is when we don't celebrate well, when it's just like we rang a bell because we hit all of our sales numbers and they know before that bell stops ringing, you're going to ask them, hey, what's what's happening next quarter? You didn't celebrate well. They have not felt an actual attachment to all of the results that they've brought and you will not have a culture that's healthy and growing because people know, oh, it's only about what have you done for me lately? And lately ends as soon as the next task is on the table. Yeah, interesting. I, you guys hit a couple of notes on, for me, I, uh, particularly around the creating an invitation, right? The investment that you make in, in people. Um, I, uh, my mother was schizophrenic, right? And manic depressive, and she was catatonic. And God, they tried all kinds of psychiatrists, didn't work. And just, I remember telling my dad, I was like 13, 12 years old, hey, let, me give it, let me give it a shot. I think I can talk to mom because she was catatonic. And just sitting next to her, modeling her, and trying to breathe with her. I had read this neuro-linguistic programming technique. I was going to model her. I'm just going to see if it worked. And Man, it was really hard to keep my eyes open because catatonics don't blink, but once, twice a minute. And, and then breathing shallowly. And at one point, she just turned and looked at me and said, finally, someone's listening. And I know for me that that's really true. I, I, I just, when, when I'm upset, if somebody's listening to me, I can unplug and I have a lot of room to hear what they have to say once I've been heard if I'm plugged in. I think just having the presence or the wherewithal to do that is a big deal to be able to carry it, as you say, carry what they have, what they have, what's going on with them in a way that it unloads for them. And when it unloads, there's a lot of space there to reinvent the relationship in that moment. And it is an investment. I think you're right on. I think you're investing in a future worth having by just by doing that. I love the five to one ratio. It makes a lot of sense to me. But it was interesting with my mother, because in the years that followed, when she would go through a cycle, she and she went farther and farther. You know, she like lived a life on her own until she died at 82. But if she went off on a what do we say on one of her special trips, my family would end up calling me at some point to go sit and talk with her. And inevitably she would listen because she knew if I was sitting there, <laughs> it was there was someone, there was an ear, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> It's it, what, what comes up for me with this is, you know, we, we've got a phrase that we use all the time that a broken commitment is a cry for help. 
the broken commitment is a cry for help. And yeah. And by that, we usually mean, well, usually the, the predecessor of that, or like, how do you even know that is to know what someone's committed to, which is back to the vision conversation. It's like, Hey, here's what we're up to. Here's what, you know, get somebody's integrity on the table. Here's what we're all committed to. And so if that's most people don't do that, most people make declarations and then don't listen and get people's buy-in and, you know, everybody pinkies wears and spit shakes. This is where we're headed. Um, and so because they miss that, then it's like a personality driven culture instead of a principally principle driven culture or a culture that's driven by our word, which is usually very powerful. If you've got that, then usually, uh, what you can do is when someone breaks a commitment now, you, now you, you know what they were committed to, not like, Oh, let me go. They must not get it. You know, and I got to go in there and teach them something or, or correct something instead of having this moment of pause and going and connecting via empathy and saying, Hey, I see this isn't going very well. How are you doing? But what competes with that is, is it occurs to me and listening to people I work with on a daily basis and just being a guy too, that's got a lot going on mm -hmm. is breakdowns seem like threats. you like it, not somebody else not producing uh, it feels like a threat to me because I feel like I'm on a shoestring budget or a very razor wire. I don't have much time. And that kind of scarcity mindset when other people show up as humans, not perfect. I, I can tend to yeah. see them as a threat to what I've got going on. And I don't pause and say, hold on a second. This relationship is more important than, you know, than the results right now. Let me connect with this relationship, this person as a person. But that takes some faith to like believe that yeah. if I give something, give love in the moment instead of, you know, take, um, I guess the taking would be like, I'm here to, I mean, I'm here to make sure you're committed. That would be much more of a, Wait, I'm, here to, I'm here to get something. Go ahead. Yeah. I was thinking about how much, it really is connected when I, when you're talking for me is how much of a tool do I make myself? Because to the degree that I make myself a tool, I'm probably going to see others as tools. And if they're not doing what they're designed to do, then there must be something wrong, bad, or broken with them. So the relationship does, it only shows up in the sense of its usefulness. And I think that, you know, I, I, love, the, I love the saying when a founder comes back and says, well, you know, they were hired to produce a result. And that kind of divorces the relationship. Like all action comes out of relationships. So, and and it is almost like, well, if I get into relationship with them, somehow I'm going to be distracted, or or because I'm going to care too much to to call them up to what they really want to do, right? When, when in fact it's the opposite. Yeah, I actually understand why they're doing what they're doing, and I can stand for that, not the result. The result comes out of the stand for what matters to them. So that. That's quite a dance, you know. I, I know for me, I, I, we, I, I have to catch myself. I have to be aware of my own machinery, right? Mm. My own, because it's really my machinery is my ally. Like when I start to find myself getting defensive or edgy or frustrated, it's telling me something about what's wanted and needed in the relationship I have directly with this person. Like what's missing here? That I, you know, how do I get the words to communicate? what's really going on for me, right? Rather than trying to manipulate or force the, a round peg into a square hole or square peg into a round hole, however you want to say it.
And, and that takes some, like you said, Adrian, I think it is. It, it's like, it takes some faith that the relationship mm -hmm. is worth the investment. Yeah. Yeah. Carl, you said, you, oh, sorry. Uh, mine's going to be a right turn. So if you have something else to add to this, go for it. Well, just to, I guess, to affirm what, what I'm, what I mean, bro, I'm taking vigorous notes over here. So thanks Carl for me too. <laughs> um, but the, and it, it seems like what you're up to, which is closely connected to what we're up to is helping leaders get connected to like what could be the really most powerful um, catalyst in the culture, mm. um, which isn't expertise, not expertise, it's not competency. It's, it's interesting. I just got a text from my CIO. I'm emotionally exhausted. Can we have some time to recreate? I said, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, they don't, and it, it's this idea, and it's surprising how long it takes us to learn this, but when you're set inside a particular culture, it happens, but you can find expertise anywhere now, like we're the most informed generation that's ever walked the planet, and we're equally the most disconnected uh, populist group that's ever walked um, the planet. And so I think the greatest CEOs, greatest leaders of the future will actually have higher EQs than IQs. Yeah. 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 It, he, um, he, he's become popular since then, but this guy, Daniel Pink, you guys know Daniel Pink? Yeah. He, he wrote, he's written a handful of books now. Um, he's a neuroscientist. But his really? first book, I believe what was his first book, I bought it at, I just remember I was at Powell's bookstore in, in Portland, which was like, you know, Mecca, if you're a nerd, um, of which I'm proudly a nerd. Um, I found his book. I just saw it like whatever. I'm always the guy that goes to the self-help and business leadership and that kind of section. And this book was, I bought it probably 20 years ago. And it's that thesis, actually, Carl, which is, mm -hmm. the book is called How the Right Brain Will Rule the World. Yeah, and it's about it's it's saying that MFAs are going to be more more valuable in the future than MBAs because it's the it's the human endeavor that that you know, will the human willingness to endeavor and do it creatively and do it interconnected and he's got all these kind of essentially values of the right brain quote unquote um, which is like interconnection and emotionality and inspiration and creativity and all that stuff that's actually where things live. Everything else is like data to fuel data that needs that to be the, that's the, that's the gas in the engine, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the leaders who want to care for the whole brain. So we typically look left brain, right brain, but we forget there's a third and that's brain stem. And so that's what controls all body functions. And so part of this is also as a leader going, how do I care for the creative? How do I care for the logical and logistic? And how do I care for the actual physical person? And you actually see what's, you know, one of the largest companies on the planet is Google. And the reason for this is they exploded during uh, the early 2000s because they started caring holistically for their employees. Now, a lot of that is not the case anymore, but their tipping point came when they said, we're going to care about your home life and work 
um, your time off and we're going to care about how we feed you on campus and we're going to care about making aesthetically beautiful places. We're also going to care about hiring the smartest people so that when you walk into the building, you feel like you're constantly growing because you're no longer the smartest person in the room. And so it invigorates you. It doesn't deplete or diminish you. And so who are the leaders who are now, go now going, I will care for your left, your right and your brainstem? So in the uh, we're we're running low on time. I do want to yeah. I do want to ask you about something that you said in your intro, which was fascinating to me. I'd never heard anybody say it before, and so I wanted to get the digs on it. So you said leaders or CEOs are not seen or heard, and that was kind of surprising to me because I often look at it as like they're the most seen and heard. Their opinion has the most weight. They're the most, you know, that's what I, that's what I go to on the surface. I think I have an idea of where you, what you mean and where you're going with that, but I would love to hear you unpack that uh, if you're willing. Absolutely. So let's go back to Adrian's example. Like Adrian lives in a cool town and they have cool cocktail parties and he shows up and he decides I'm going to be the most interesting or interested person in the room. And maybe 20 other people have decided to be the most interesting person in the room. Now, in their heart of hearts, if I got them after four or five drinks to really go, how, how interesting do you think you are? They're probably going to like crying into their cocktail go, I don't think anybody likes me. I don't think anybody knows that I'm interested. I don't think I'm interested. <laughs> um, it, it is what, it's what philosophers and spiritualists and uh, thinkers will call the false self. Um, and so if you can imagine this, it's this idea of if I created a little call hologram and what he did is he hovered about uh, six, six inches in front of me. When I walk into a room, my hologram is my job title, how good I look, the car I drive, the money I make, the wife I'm married to, how smart and bright my kids are. This is the thing I carry into every room. And if I'm unhealthy, goes, please look at the hologram. Do not Wizard of Oz look behind the curtain at the call behind the hologram. Mm -hmm. And it's what's happening in all of these cocktail parties that Adrian talks about. What you have is you have 50 holograms walking in front of the person. Now, what I would say is the healthier the person is, everybody's got a false projection. It's just us walking through the world. But the closer that person, that hologram is to the actual physical being, the, the healthier you are because you're like, oh, my projection is actually incredibly close to who I am when I'm in a healthy place. You could almost not tell the difference. It's almost like a, a slight shimmer when you're watching 3D uh, and you're like, oh, I can see a little bit of a difference, but it's mostly them. That's really healthy. When you're really unhealthy, that projection is so far in front of you. If you were to see the original character, you would not be able to link the hologram, the false projection, the false image to the real person. Mm -hmm. And I would say for the majority of the CEOs, um, that I have encountered the best ones that hologram is close ish, but for a lot of them, it's really far out. And after about my fourth or fifth session with them, and I'm talking more about their lives and their hopes and their dreams, that, that hologram starts to like flicker. It starts to come off a little bit because when I say they're not listened to and they're not seen, who I mean is the actual person. Everybody sees the CEO. Everybody sees this loud character. Everybody sees this vision carrying person they don't see um, who's actually having to project that. And my wife actually has a lovely little phrase for it. Um, she'll talk about, oh, I'm sorry, did that like, did that hurt your little boy hurt? 
like she'll kind of like if i if she sees something like hits a nerve she knows that like hey maybe i've created protection around something but if it actually hits it means it got through the projection it got to who i am actually and it's created um a response and yeah. so that idea i think is very core linked do they have people in, and the unhealthiest cultures are when these ceos and leaders have no accountability and i don't mean accountability in terms of somebody who's going to bring them to task for not hitting their q2 goals i'm talking about is there anybody they can carry all this stuff like adrian's father carried to him and feel safe in the environment yeah that's great yeah and, and i think what people tend to see they tend to see the power differential or they tend to see their survival needs can only be met by the ceo and and by the author, like I love the hologram uh, metaphor because if people connect with a person, uh, not only does it provide a new ground for relationship, but they the CEO will they'll give the, they'll not only will they ask for a break, they'll be willing to give breaks. They'll be willing to give and take. They'll be willing to give the break they want from the CEO to the CEO, right? And, and that's that that is a huge that the, the creativity in the culture goes so far. It just goes right through the roof when that kind of reciprocation happens because everybody knows who the power in the room is. And can you put that down now and reciprocate with one another and really start to you know, work with each other and really does start with the CEO and the C-suite because if they can get that accomplished, the others will respond. You'll, you actually draw to you the kind of team that you long for, but it, it's really weird. I found a lot of times those invitations look like threats because of the fear of, you know, uh, whatever happened in the past or being betrayed. And it's actually that kind of courage that encourages other people to come to the surface. So yeah, great stuff, man. I love it. It's great. I have a joke that usually doesn't land. Um, that, <laughs> that, that goes, you know, when, when, a, when a leader has an epiphany, they're the last one of the party. <laughs> it worked. You know, <laughs> I was talking to a guy last night, a dear, a dear client of mine, and who's that? I, who I'd consider a friend now. We worked together for so long, and he was like, "I'm just, I just am scared that I'm a lunatic." And I'm laughing. I'm like, "You are, man. You are. You're a lunatic. No one else would take on this vision. There's like no one else in the world that wanted this vision. Only you. Only you think this is possible." You're a lunatic, man. And like, own that. Own it. Like, you know, he, he was spending so much time trying to convince me that he ought not be a lunatic. And I'm just like, hey, man, there's a part of people like you change the world. Most of us are going to do our best and change like one starfish at a time or whatever. Pick a story. But there's certain people that are going to change the course of human history and they must be lunatics. Yep. Yeah. And all that to say is, is I, I dig, I really dig the hologram analogy as well. You know, I, I, I know we're trying to wrap up here, but just, just to connect here at the end is, you know, as, as I've gotten as a, as a human, as I've integrated more of my own story and more of my own despair and more of my own longing and lacking and struggle and haven't, as we talk about it, kept that as an enemy, but really see it as an ally. And even as a way to really give permission to somebody else to struggle, especially even if it's just with me, you know, in the context of a leadership, uh, you know, coaching context, it's like, you feel like a fraud, man. Me too, man. I, I, I'm very familiar with that. I am, by the way, I am. And that's okay. Like I'm putting on airs. I want you to like me. 
and I'll sell out to do that if I don't realize I'm doing that. And then as soon as I see myself selling out, I can not sell out and I can talk about it. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll, there's some freedom there. That, that To your point, Carl, there's some people can spend their whole lives trying the best to get people to just deal with this innate uh, primal need is if you really see me, will you stay? Yeah. You know, and most people, including me for decades of my life thought, Nope, not taking that risk. No. And what a, what a grand invitation, man. I thank you for your stand with your people, man. I love you. Love your work. Um, inspired by you. So thank you, man. Uh, Absolute pleasure. Thank you for the kind words. Adrian, just as an observer of that joke many times, it seems to land with coaches and not with founders. (laughs) (laughs) They're still sensitive about it. (laughs) I I love the Thomas, I love the Thomas Sowell quote. It takes considerable knowledge just to realize the extent of my own ignorance. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and speaking of Thomas, I think it's uh, Thomas Bacon. My favorite quote around that idea is, it's a tragedy to die known to everyone but yourself. Oh, man, that's killer. Um, that is beautiful. That's Bacon. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, so Thomas Bacon. Yeah. yeah, it's a tragedy for a man to die known to everyone but himself. Well, Carl Liveth, you are a gem, my brother. And- uh, likewise. I am so grateful for this conversation. Like Adrian mentioned, I've got copious notes and there's so much more I wanted to dig into with you, but um, uh, can you just take a second, let people know where they can get more Carl in their life? Cause they're going to want it. And, uh, and then we'll end there. All right. You're very kind. It's kind of one of those ridiculous things. I, I don't have a lot out there. Uh, what I do is almost always referral. Somebody goes, Hey, I know Carl, you should talk to him. Uh, if somebody wants to see the scrapbook of my family is what my social media is. Uh, so it's not really useful to them. That's just at Carl Dylan, C-A-R-L-D-Y-L-A-N. Um, but then the consulting and the coaching happens at tolltalebrands.com. You have a, correct me if I'm wrong, but you have a couple of podcasts out there too. Yeah. My brother and I did an Enneagram podcast for a long time, but uh, COVID put a, a pretty long hiatus in that. But if you want somebody brilliant, uh, that's who you want to go follow. That's at drjerome.com. That's he's, you know, I have an incredible bias, but other really, really smart people keep on telling me the same thing. So if you want a, a brilliant neurologist who is incredibly well-versed in the human psyche, um, as well as the Enneagram, drjerome.com, that's, that's a place I'd go spend some time on the internet. Awesome. Well, thank you again, brother. Yeah, I had a great time. Thanks guys for having me on. Yeah. Bye-bye everybody. Take care. Cheers. Well, my friends, thank you so much for listening to yet another conversation on the Naked Leadership Podcast. Your listenership and commitment to the podcast means the world to us. If this podcast or these conversations has helped or inspired you in any way, would you mind going to Apple Podcasts and leaving a five-star rating and a glowing review? This helps us grow the movement and reach more leaders and teams. Finally, the greatest compliment that you can give us is sharing the podcast with your teams and the other leaders in your life. Until next week, bye-bye everybody.